Okay, good evening. Um, thank you all very much for coming. It's uh, very good to, to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, this is the first um, in our series of debating law events, uh, and our question tonight is, um, the debate is, is rape different? Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, the event is being fil- filmed. Um, the setup um, is that we'll have each of our speakers speak for about 10 minutes, um, and then after that there should be plenty of time uh, for you to ask questions. Uh, you can also um, tweet us your questions. We seem to be set up for, for Twitter, hopefully. Um, so I'm told that you can follow the event um, at LSE Law, and if you want to tweet questions or comments, then the hashtag is LSE Different, LSE Different. Uh, and we hope to wrap the event up at about 8 o'clock. Um, so, as I said, the question is, is rape different? And we've got four very eminent speakers who I think are very well placed to address and debate that question. Uh, so we have, uh, starting nearest me, we have Helen Rees, uh, who's a reader in the LSE Law Department. Uh, then we have Jennifer Temkin, who's a professor at City Law School. Uh, we also have uh, Barbara Hewson, who's a barrister at Hardwick Chambers, and Nazir Afsal, who's Chief Crown Prosecutor for CPS North West England. Uh, so I'll just uh, start by saying a few words. Uh, why are we asking whether rape is different? No one is debating whether or not rape is a serious crime. I think that's agreed. But rape is also a controversial crime that is often in the media. One of the best-known facts about rape is that it seems to have a low conviction rate. About 7% of rapes reported to the police result in a conviction for the offence of rape. And that seemingly low conviction rate often uh, is the subject of criticism and the suggestion, perhaps, that we treat rape complainants too sceptically. Another reason why rape and sexual offences are different is that they're the only offences where we have automatic anonymity for complainants. And that, of course, has recently caused debate about whether we should also extend anonymity to defendants in rape and sexual assault cases. Rape and other sexual assault cases are also often thought to create difficulties of proof. Often the key question in a case will be, was the consent? Did the complainant consent? That can be difficult to prove. Often it seems it will come down to being one person's word against another's. Given such difficulties of proof, judgments about what happened may be heavily influenced by our assumptions about sexual morality, about how men and women do and should act in intimate situations and their aftermath. Finally, sexual offences may be different because of the time span in which we are prepared to prosecute. So this summer, we saw Stuart Hall, aged 83, prosecuted for sex offences dating back to 1968. It seems that that's fairly rare in other offences. So again, is rape different? So the questions then for our panellists, is rape different to non-sexual crimes? in these and other ways? And should we treat rape differently? So with that, I'll um, hand over to the first of our speakers tonight, Helen Rees.
Thank you very much, Mike. Can you hear me at the back? Please wave your hand if you can hear me. If um, at any, as Mike said, there'll, there'll be lots of times for questions at the end, but if at any point you can't hear me, please um, do let me know during this talk. So as, as Mike has um, reminded us, the question that we're asking tonight is, is rape different? And I'd like to start by saying that I think that by the actual posing of that question... LSE and LSE Law Department has already done a huge service in the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of inquiry and the pursuit of debate. Why do I say that? Well, it's actually very rare to hear that question posed, at least explicitly. Normally, the answer to that question, is rape different, is assumed. Of course it is. It's unique. It's a crime apart. And the fact that the answer to this question, yes, is normally assumed, has some quite dangerous effects. Because what tends to happen is a statement is made about rape, which may often, sometimes, literally be true when taken in its own terms. But the problem is that the way it's put is is misleading, because the assumption behind the statement, the research, is that rape is unique in that respect. And actually, I would suggest that there's, if you like, a fault line that runs through discussions of rape, rape research, rape debates, that the comparison between rape and other crimes is very rarely made. Sometimes it is made in the literature, and when it is made, it leads to some quite interesting results. But more often, there is no comparison made. And in a way, that's actually my main point in my introductory comments, is that we need to ask that question, is rape different? That's my main point in the introduction, and to some extent, right through this debate, that it's important for us to make comparisons with other crimes and to do that repeatedly whenever we're discussing rape. So that question, is rape different, I'm very glad to have put on the table. Every time we're discussing a new issue in relation to rape, we need to ask ourselves, is rape unique in this respect, or actually would the answer be the same if we looked at this in relation to other crimes? So I'm very glad to be taking part in this debate. I think it's very welcome. Now, the area that I'm going to look at, the question of whether rape is different or not, is in relation to the very strong consensus that society is in thrall to what is described in the literature as rape myths, that the general public is gripped by what what is often described in the literature as rape supportive attitudes, attitudes that support rape. And what I'm going to be arguing in the next few minutes and really throughout is that the attitudes that the public has to rape are not so different from the attitudes that they have to other crimes and are also not so bad. I'm going to be arguing that rape myths are not as prevalent, not as widespread as is suggested by that strong consensus. And there is a very strong consensus on the idea that rape myths are rampant 
throughout society. The general public believes rape myths. If you're in any doubt about this, and I guess most people in the room won't be, try typing rape myths into Google, and you'll see that every website that you care to look at, from Mumsnet through to the Home Office, CPS, wherever you look, the discussion goes along the lines of, these are the five rape myths to watch out for. These are the ten most common rape myths. Um, You know, don't, don't fall prey to them. You will not, and I throw this challenge out to the audience, you will not find a website that is devoted to discussing whether rape myths exist. You will not find an internet forum that debates the question of whether rape myths are widely held. It just isn't there. This is a very strong consensus. Perhaps consensus isn't actually a strong enough word. So I do know what I'm up against in making this argument. I do appreciate that I am up against an incredibly strong consensus in my argument that rape myths are not, uh, they do not have a grip, the grip on the public that um, is suggested. But I would say that when we're faced with a strong consensus, particularly on a social science question, it's particularly incumbent upon us to keep our eyes wide open. Because what can happen, very understandably, is once a strong consensus has emerged on a social science question, what can then happen is that research, ideas, opinions can slip under the radar without being subjected to the critical scrutiny that they would have been subjected to had they gone more against the grain. So I am happy to be arguing against that strong consensus. I think it's our duty to do that, and perhaps it's particularly appropriate to do that at LSE, the home of social science. So in the time that I've got left, I want to look at what I want to suggest to you is that there are a number of techniques that social scientists, rape myth researchers use that lead them to um, the effect that rape myths are more rampant, more prevalent than they actually are. And in using the word techniques, I've tried to find the most value-neutral word that I could, these techniques or strategies, the ones that lead to this effect. And because time is limited, I'm just going to use one example here of um, what happens. And it's quite a useful one, because within this example, actually you can see nearly all the techniques at work here. Obviously, you can read my article where I go through many more examples of this. And the example I'm going to use is the very strong consensus that people blame rape victims. Many of you may remember the headlines a few years ago now. One in three blames women for being raped. They were all over the media. They've been repeated many times since. And actually, that um, idea has really um, buried itself very deep into the academic literature as well. So it's very much a consensus in itself um, that that's what the research shows. But actually, if you look at that research, I would suggest to you that it shows nothing of the kind. The research that gave rise to those headlines was carried out by Amnesty, no comment there, 
Um, and what Amnesty did was it um, surveyed a large um, number of uh, people in the UK and it put to them a number of different scenarios where women uh, might be raped, uh, where she'd been flirting, drinking, where she'd got into bed with somebody else. And they asked the general public to say, in those circumstances, do you think the woman is responsible? And the public could answer yes, no, or partly. And sure enough, um, large numbers of the public answered either yes or partly, hence the one in three figure. But the thing that you can notice immediately about that research is that nowhere in those surveys was the word blame ever mentioned And yet, the conclusion is drawn, one in three blames women for being raped. And this is a general point about the rape research. Surrogates for blame are often used. Sometimes it's responsibility, sometimes it's control, sometimes it's causal factors. But I haven't yet come across a survey that asks people explicitly about blame. A surrogate for blame is used, but the conclusion is drawn that people blame rape victims. But of course, responsibility is not the same as blame. Responsibility is a complicated concept, which on the one hand does point towards blame, but on the other hand points towards notions of causal attribution, of increase of risk. And from um, the survey results, it's impossible to know how many people were trying to say that women were to blame for being raped and how many people were just simply trying to say that what the woman had had done, hypothetically, could have increased the risk of rape. Maybe she would, would not have been raped had she behaved differently. And the thing that's very interesting about that, to the extent that people may have been saying the second of those statements is not only is that a much softer thing to say than that women are to blame for being raped, it's actually true. The research is clear-cut, and it's really no surprise that certain forms of behaviour do increase the risk of rape. And this, again, is a general point about um, the amnesty research, that we can generalise out and see it operating elsewhere in rape myth research, that at least since 2007, rape myths have been defined as ethically wrong, not false. So we now have the rape myth, which by definition may not be false. And of course, if something is not necessarily false, then it may very well be true as it is in that example. You did, and I will do. Okay. And that's very useful, because that takes me right back to the beginning. There are lots more um, criticisms that I would have of rape myth research, and there are lots more techniques that I would like to tell you about. But the last one, still in relation to the amnesty research, takes me right back to the beginning of my talk. And that is the lack of any comparison. We have members of the public being asked 
um, you know, how responsible do you think a woman is if she flirted, if she was drunk, if she got into bed with somebody? But we don't have the comparison with other crimes. We don't have people being asked comparably, well, when someone's beaten up, when they're robbed, how responsible do you think they are when, um, you know, they... um, they left their wallet there or they walked down a road at night time and so on. We don't have that comparison. And that is a general fault line running through rape myth research and rape research. And why I'm very, very happy to be taking part in this debate. Is rape different? Okay, thanks very much, Helen. So our... Uh, So our next speaker is Professor Jennifer Temkin. Is rape different? Well, I think the answer is yes. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is to take issue with some of the points that are raised in Helen's article in the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies. Helen's argument is that rape is the same, but her argument is not evidence-based. Let's take police treatment of rape victims. Excuse me. Hundreds and hundreds of research papers from across the globe demonstrate the harsh treatment of rape victims in the past and now by the police. And to their credit, the police in this country have been the first to acknowledge that rape victims have indeed been singled out for harsh treatment. Helen says that the police may mistreat other crime victims to the same extent. But Even were this true, and there is nothing to suggest that it is true, how useful is that argument? The police in Rochdale knew that 12- and 13-year-old girls were being systematically raped, and they did nothing. The police investigating the Savile rapes just listened to Jimmy and accepted his every word. Does it make it any better if other victims are being ignored as well? Yes, of course, as Helen says, police have to question rape complainants thoroughly. Of course they do. But that's not the same as ignoring them and disbelieving what they say. Well, what about conviction rates for rape? Are they any lower than for other offences? Helen suggests no. She says the conviction rate for burglary is just as low. A very odd comparison. For a start, the identity of burglars is often unknown, so they can't be prosecuted. Of course the conviction rate for burglary, as compared with the number of burglaries reported to the police, is going to be low. But 
the most recent figures tell us that the identity of a rapist is known in 90% of cases. They could be prosecuted, but very often they are not. But more to the point is this. You simply cannot compare statistics for different crime groups. This is because crime statistics for different crimes are compiled completely differently. The Ministry of Justice has made this very plain. Baroness Stern, who recently produced a major report on rape, made a plea for statistics to be compiled so that comparisons could be made between rape and other offences. And the Ministry of Justice has now responded with a report published this year called An Overview of Sexual Offending in England and Wales. This special report, specially compiled, compares rape with other crimes and in particular with other violent crimes. So let's see what it has to say. First of all, it shows us that the sanction detection rate for rape of a female was 23% in the year 2011 to 2012. What do we mean by the sanction detection rate? This is the rate of recorded offences of rape resulting in some kind of sanction, such as charging, caution, prosecution. So the sanction detection rate for rape was 23%. The study compares this with the sanction detection rate for violence causing injury. That was 40%, almost twice as high. Well, let's look at the conviction rates as set out in this report. The conviction rate for rapes recorded in 2009 was 60%. The conviction rate for murders recorded in 2009 was 81%. The conviction rate for rape where the accused pleaded not guilty was 37%. The conviction rate for murder where the accused pleaded not guilty was 72% almost twice as high as for rape. So yes, the conviction rate for rape as compared with other offences is low and we should be concerned about it. Well, what then about reporting rates? We know that many more women and men are reporting rape than ever before. However, the British crime surveys have consistently shown that most victims, the overwhelming majority of victims, still do not report rape. Well, is that different from other offences? Helen suggests no, it isn't. She compares in her article the situation where a man steals a tenner from his girlfriend's purse 
or where a group of friends go out for dinner to a restaurant and then one of them avoids paying his share of the bill. She says these crimes also wouldn't be reported to the police. But come on, how can one possibly compare these incidents to rape? Most people think that rape is an extremely serious crime. If victims are not reporting it, then something somewhere is going badly wrong. But really, best simply to dump your boyfriend if he's dishonest. Dump your friend if he doesn't pay his share of the restaurant bills. These are trivial matters which are sensibly dealt with outside the criminal justice system. Are victims to blame some are victims of rape sometimes to blame? Well, Helen says, let's stop talking about victim vulnerability and victims whose actions enhance their vulnerability. Let's call a spade a spade. Recently, Kate McCann said that she and Jerry were not to blame for Madeleine's abduction. The person who took her was to blame. And she was completely right. Likewise, the one and only person who is to blame for a rape is the perpetrator. The actions of the victim are irrelevant to criminal liability. Now, Helen seems to think that victims who are raped when drunk should have their compensation reduced, just like the man who gets drunk and gets injured in a drunken brawl. Women who drink too much are behaving foolishly, but they're not to blame for getting raped. Do people blame rape victims more than other crime victims? Helen suggests that perhaps all crime victims get blamed. Yes, victims do blame some crime victims apart from rape victims. Take the McCanns, for example. <clears throat> They've had their fair share of blame. But there is no research which shows that other victims are, as a class, consistently and persistently blamed in the way that rape victims are. There is no research which shows that there is a body of mythology surrounding other victims in the way that there is for rape. That absence of research speaks for itself. The onus is on Helen now to show that people are equally blaming of other crime victims and, and this is the important thing, that this may colour their attitude when asked to assess criminal liability because when it comes to rape, those blaming attitudes can colour members of the jury when it comes to assessing 
um, criminal liability. But people might unfairly blame the McCanns. No jury is going to fail to convict her abductors on that basis. So what then is Helen's agenda? Jennifer, if I can butt in I'm again. I'm going to if you wrap can... up now. Super, she, thanks. She would like to turn the clock back. She doesn't like judges warning juries about making false assumptions about rape based on myths and folklore. She thinks that the judges have been influenced by a malign elite. But seeking justice for rape victims is not elitist. Most people are in favor of this, including the popular press. It would be an outrage to turn the clock back on rape, as Helen would wish us to do. And what incredibly bad timing. Think of the Rochdale rapes, the Savile rapes, the Oxford rapes, the multiple rapes by Catholic clergymen, to name but a few scandals. The very idea that we should be making it even more difficult now to bring successful prosecutions for rape simply beggars belief. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, so now over to our next speaker, Barbara Hewson. Thanks, Mike. Um, can everybody hear me at the back? Yes? Great. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to the last two speakers. Um, my background is not in criminal law, and my first degree was not in law either. It was in English literature. So what I want to do is to draw your attention to the actual language that is being used uh, to talk about rape and sex crime these days and to invite you to see it uh, not as neutral um, but as a particular type of rhetoric. And when you hear um, rape discussed, to um, invite yourselves to think about why people discussing it are using the terms that they do. Uh, now... Why is rape different? Um, yes, well, you've heard two, two, two competing arguments about the crime. Um, it's worth remembering that the well-known feminist commentator Germaine Greer has strenuously advocated the idea that rape should not be seen as different, that it is an assault on the person like other categories of assault. Uh, and she, in 2006, advanced the down-to-earth argument that the crime of rape should be abolished and it should be replaced with a downgraded offence of common assault with a sexual component. Um, and she argued also that um, crimes of mutilation against children should be treated far more severely than, um, if you like, your common or garden rape of a female adult. Um, so she's been an outspoken person who's challenged the prevailing consensus about rape as a uniquely heinous and appalling crime. Um, and she has also argued that complainants should not expect anonymity and that if they are trying to um, accuse someone of an offence which can result in their loss of liberty, they should be prepared to turn up in court, look that person in the eye and give their evidence in exactly the same way as accusers in other types of criminal prosecution. So why do we have these two competing views? Um, I'm suggesting to you that this is part of a, a, a much older debate about equality and difference. 
Um, in the 19th century, when women campaigned for equality, what they were looking for was political equality, um, to be treated in the same way as men and to have access to the same opportunities as men. They weren't asking to be treated differently. Um, however, they appropriated, in many ways, um, language about sexuality and ideas of sexual behaviour, which come from older historical roots. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to the social purity movement, which was very active in the 19th century and which had a lot to say about sex crime, prostitution and enforced um, sexual uh, slavery, as we would call it now. And this was very heavily influenced by the Christian revivalist movement, uh, one of the most outstanding feminist campaigners, Josephine Butler, who campaigned against prostitution, uh, was a fervent feminist, but also a fervent Christian. Uh, and prostitution for these campaigners was distasteful because it was also immoral. Uh, women who engaged in prostitution were not just unfortunate, but they were fallen and they needed to be saved. And in the 19th century, you see the start of what nowadays we would call the rescue industry. Um, and they use exactly the same language that we hear used now. They talk of trafficking. They talk of enforced um, prostitution. Uh, they were very concerned with the problem of young girls, as they saw it involved in, in prostitution. Uh, and they were very strongly against the idea of state regulation of prostitution because at the time the Contagious Diseases Act enabled the police to um, accuse women of being prostitutes with the result that they were subject to an enforced examination to see whether or not they had a sexually transmitted disease, which Josephine Butler characterised as surgical rape. Uh, in the 1880s, there was an outstanding moral panic created by a newspaper called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, which I suggest to you has direct um, overtones for the way we talk about sex crime today. Uh, and it was a scandal about underage girls in the sex trade. It was described in the most lurid terms. Uh, it was described as women being ruined. Um, they were maidens this morning, but tonight their ruin will be accomplished. Um, they will be destroyed. Um, the newspaper editor, who was a fervent Christian himself, um, suggested that he might be able to shake the conscience of some nice people out there, um, but he cynically suggested that most people couldn't give a toss. Uh, and he said, London's lust annually uses up many thousands of women who are literally killed and made away with, living sacrifices slain in the service of vice. So he uses very lurid language to describe the sex trade. Um, and... Um, very titillating accounts of flogging and rape in padded rooms, articles entitled things like Why the Cries of Victims Are Not Heard, um, and created a huge moral panic which led to the um, increase in the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16, but also greatly increased regulation of street walking and prostitution, um, and also criminalised indecency between men. So, um, what that led to um, is the idea that in order to protect women, you lead to a situation where you have greater regulation and you also have a portrayal of women as inherently vulnerable. Uh, and it's perhaps no accident that this occurred at a time when there was a lot of anxiety about female independence. More and more women were coming into the urban areas seeking to work independently. Some of them were exposed to the risk of prostitution uh, and that led to a countervailing argument that they were, they were in danger and that freedom was dangerous. Um, and that led to, if you like, the idea that... Um, women needed to be protected from this kind of thing um, and that they were inherently fragile and vulnerable. And we still hear this rhetoric of vulnerability used today. Um, moving forward, 
The next rhetoric which is introduced, which is very powerful around sex crime, is that of the 1970s and 80s feminists who were very vocal about the idea that rape was minimised, that sexual abuse was much more widespread in society than people were prepared to acknowledge. Um, and again, they use this very dramatic idea of um, women being subjected to appalling abuses behind closed doors. And again, they use this idea of um, enslavement. Um, they treated women subjected to sex crimes as victims on a par with those who were victims of torturers or Nazi um, abusers um, and they developed this idea of the victim um, which views women as if you like enslaved by the patriarchal society um, child girls are groomed by sexual abuse for a lifetime of sexual subjugation to men and when they grow up they will be married and they will be beaten and raped now this is very extreme um, but it's typical of a type of rhetoric which again harks back to Christian revivalism in the 19th century, which is all about the world is very wicked and cruel. It's also evil. Um, if, you, if you wake up and hear the truth, you can be saved. If not, it's going to be terrible. Um, and what you had were these first-person testimonies, which were repeatedly um, propagated about terrible abuse that was happening to women. Um, and this caused, if you like, a very powerful movement um, where the idea that sexual abuse was seen as widespread became more and more acceptable. It was taken up by psychotherapists, it was taken up by campaigners. Um, people started to write self-help books like The Courage to Heal, published in 1998. Very influential book, written not by a psychotherapist or a psychologist or a criminologist, but by two students of creative writing who became convinced as they um, had workshops with students writing stories that what the students were really writing about was repressed sexual abuse. And they wrote this book called The Courage to Heal, which famously said, if you are unable to remember any specific instances of abuse, but still have a feeling that something abusive happened to you, it probably did. Uh, and that actually led to a whole outbreak of people thinking that they'd been abused in childhood, making accusations against parents, lawsuits, prosecutions, and um, consequent miscarriages of justice. Um, but this idea that you should believe the victim unquestioningly, and that if someone says something happened to me, it has done, or it probably has done, has been enormously influential, um, to a point now where I think we, we have virtually an ideology, and this is certainly how the sociologist Joel Best has described it, um, an ideology of sexual victimization, which dominates current thinking. Uh, and it really has four components. The first is the idea that rape and sexual abuse are very widespread but largely unrecognised, even by victims themselves who need to be taught to recognise what's really happened. Secondly, that it has long-term damaging effects. Thirdly, that it's morally absolutely unambiguous. The victim is utterly innocent, the victimizer is utterly guilty, and this is incontestable. And then finally, claims of victimisation must always be respected, anything less is victim-blaming. Um, and this, I think, this explanation that Best gives is, it explains why we talk about rape in the way that we do at the moment and why anyone who, who questions it in any way at all is immediately accused of being either victim-blaming or a rape apologist. Um, but it is a problematic discourse. 
Well, first, the idea that sexual abuse is widespread, I think, is highly debatable. Um, in America, when the Courage to Heal came out, they were insisting that one in three women was sexually abused, which, if true, would imply a crime wave of absolutely epidemic proportions, which actually the system couldn't possibly deal with. Um, Secondly, it is very, very um, reductionist, arguably, in its assumption that sexual abuse causes lifelong damage, and it's responsible for a whole host of other problems, depression, doing badly at school, not being able to succeed in, in, in a marriage, not being able to succeed in your career. It becomes the cause of everything that goes wrong in life. Um, and then finally, it's very absolutist, as I've suggested. So I think there are problems about the way we talk about rape at the moment, and I think that Mike, how am I doing for time? Um, If you could wrap up. Okay. Um, What I want you to do is to think very hard about the rhetoric that you hear and think about where it comes from, why we talk about rape in the way that we do. Uh, And finally, in answer to the question, is rape different? My view is that we have actually problematised rape to a point where actually we need to start turning the clock back. I don't think this is a bad thing, as Jennifer is suggesting. I think it's a good thing because we, we now know why we want to turn the clock back. Um, because the way in which we think about rape at the moment actually, in my opinion, has potentially more damaging consequences than it has uh, positive advantages. Thank you. And so on to our final speaker, Nazir Afsar. Good evening, everybody. Um, I prosecuted Stuart Hall, and I will prosecute him again. Uh, I prosecuted the Rochdale grooming case, uh, so I'm glad that you've been mentioning some of my cases. I I totally agree with what Professor Temkin says, but I want to give you some thoughts on the subject uh, on the basis of uh, my experience in dealing with such cases. The vast majority, in fact 99.99% of all sexual offences that I see take place either in the family, either online, Any indecent photograph of a child is a crime scene. Uh, Thirdly, they happen in institutions, uh, places generally where women have not had a voice in the past. And fourthly, they happen on the street, and that's grooming types of cases that we've uh, been dealing with uh, more so over the last year or so. In relation to all of those uh, environments, much of that has been hidden in plain sight. Uh, people knew it was happening. I think Rochdale was a classic case in point. Uh, people knew it was happening, but nobody seemed to do anything about it. Uh, and very often, victims were ashamed to report. Uh, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It was not their failure. It was mine. It was the failure of the criminal justice system uh, as to why they didn't feel confident about reporting what had happened. Now, 99.99% of those people that I deal with have never been on TV, uh, never uh, written a book, or recorded an album. Uh, These are your normal, um, everyday sex offenders, for want of a better term, and every single one of them, in my experience anyway, it wasn't the sex. It was the fact that they were in control. Uh, And I think we need to put it in uh, that perspective. This is about men controlling women and wanting to control women on a regular basis. It's about men making the rules that women have to obey. It's about, in some communities, women being brought up to think that men are the answer when, in fact, men aren't even one of the questions. And then you'll be undoubtedly aware of um, those instances uh, abroad in conflict situations where rape is being used as a weapon. Not my words, United Nations, you name it, uh, the Foreign Secretary. Rape as a weapon uh, because it will subjugate. 
it will oppress. Uh, you will undoubtedly, in, in the uh, Rossdale case, the far right, um, you know the far right, they came, said, actually this was happening in Rochdale. Uh, the women were being, uh, well, literally, the men were using rape as a weapon uh, to demonstrate how superior they were uh, to the normal white community and to these women in, in question. Now, it happens. Uh, it's what they're doing. I didn't say that. I never said that rape is a weapon in, in Rochdale. Uh, the far right then went for me. Uh, and various thousands of letters were sent, including to the Prime Minister, calling for me to be sacked and deported. Now, uh, I was born in Birmingham. I don't want to go back there. <laughs> but I think one needs to recognise that this is what's happening, and it's happening on our streets, uh, wherever it may be. And it's ultimately an abuse of power and abuse of trust. Now, there is actually a rape victim in the audience, uh, but uh, yeah, obviously I'm not going to look in her direction. But she will tell you, if she had the voice, and she was here at this microphone, that when she reported a burglary, the police, as Professor Temkin said, uh, believed her. And they went from there and actually went off and tried to find the burglar. They didn't find the burglar, but nonetheless they tried. Uh, when she witnessed a robbery take place uh, of one of her friends, the police believed her. Uh, and again, they, this time they found the perpetrator. Uh, but when she subsequently, some days or months later, reported that she'd been sexually attacked, they were sceptical. Now, that's my point, and that's Professor Temkin's point. Why would that be the case? When a woman or a girl has the courage, and all, pretty much all the victims that I've de dealt with have had tremendous courage in coming forward, either to myself or to my colleagues, uh, to seek justice. Uh, to try and understand what happened to them, to try and understand why it shouldn't happen to others. The so-called so Rochdale grooming gang, they thought that none of the 40-plus girls that they were abusing would ever stand up to them. And when one young girl did, and she's the subject of a book, Girl A, Ebury Publishing, if you want to have a look at her story, she talked about her experience. The police didn't do much with it. I'm regrettably one of my prosecutors didn't do much with it. It was only my good fortune moving to the Northwest, as I did two and a half years ago, to reverse all the decisions and to prosecute them. You only heard about that case because we prosecuted them. And that's because, again, people applied various tests in terms of the credibility, simply saying that um, she couldn't be believed, she had a troubled background, she came from a particular home. Uh, all of these things which were used as an excuse not to prosecute, when in fact we could turn it around, as we did, and say they should be prosecuted. And they were, and they were successfully prosecuted. Now, one of the reasons why rape is different is because historically we have been so bad at dealing with it. Uh, we left everything, as I said, rest on their credibility. We said that um, we didn't pay much attention to the suspect's account or to any other corroborative or supporting evidence. I hope that's not going to happen again. I think we've learned a great deal. A lot of the questions about the Rochdale case came to me. They said to me, these are all Asian men who are perpetrators. Nazir, uh, how do you feel about prosecuting people from your own community? And I said, I really feel very bad about prosecuting other men. Yeah? Uh, they, need to, they, need to, they need to bring it down to what it is about male power and you know, whether it's patriarchy or not, but simply men trying to control women's behavior. A senior police officer that's been working with rape victims for probably 30 years told me of all the cases she dealt with, rape is the worst violation that any human being can endure. That's her view. She knows it from her own, her own experience. And that was in part because of the, the response from agencies, the fact that they didn't take them seriously, as I've indicated. And when they don't take them seriously, that's a bad place to start the investigation. It's not going to go the way you want it to go. If you just, I mean, to, 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 to take Barbara's point, if you start with belief, you can either go up or down. But if you start with total scepticism, it's a big journey to go up. 
Now, another fundamental difference is the the court experience. Every part of the most intimate area of your life is dissected and examined in public. Again, referring to the Rothschild case, when 16-year-old girl A uh, was cross-examined by the ninth defendant, so the ninth time she was being cross-examined, on her fourth day in the witness box, she broke down and angrily denounced the process, only to, met by, only to be met by defence counsel saying, ah, now we see the real you. Well, they would have seen the real me a lot earlier. You know, the point is that we do that to our victims. We do that to our complainants. It's absolutely right you test their evidence, but ultimately... You shouldn't be doing that to them. It's like re-traumatizing them. And very often, our court process does re-traumatize them. And we're working on it. We're doing something about that, and hopefully things will change. Now, what do we know about rape? We know it has the power to excite debate. That's what we're here for. We also know that very few criminal offenses have such a psychological impact, and a prolonged psychological impact. We also know, and again, uh, it's been discussed earlier, around the myths and stereotypes. I can't think of any other crime, to be honest, uh, which is so beset by myths and stereotypes. Now, you've, we've talked about the public being concerned about it and talking about it. I advise EastEnders. I can assure you, EastEnders would like to have a rape in their storyline every other week. Downton Abbey had one recently. It's really important to them because it does excite interest in that sense. But then you've also heard about all these various public officials that talk about these things and, and members of the public who do. You, you, I think, just using the American example last year who said that uh, uh, if it's, you know, the American uh, politician, if it's legitimate rape, he said, the female body has ways to try and shut that whole thing down. Do you remember that? And there are few criminal offences that have such a prolonged psychological impact. I'm not a researcher. I'm not an academic. Everybody else seems to be in this room. Uh, you know, people do have problems about forging successful relationships. People have difficulties engaging in uh, sexual intimacy. They don't trust. People's trust has gone. Shame, where there's honour and shame involved, and some communities more so than others. I can give you an example where she was raped. Her family disowned her uh, because she was dead to them. They could not cope with having a rape victim in their home. Now, that's the kind of impact we're talking about. Post-traumatic stress disorder, you, um, we are familiar with cases of that nature. I dealt with a case involving uh, uh, Frances Andrade, who uh, killed herself a week after giving evidence earlier this year. You'll probably remember that case. Now, again, people went down, and it was very easy to blame the court process. Uh, it was, that was the reason why she killed herself, because of this abuse. No, I met with her family. She had been harming herself for the best part of 30 years because of what had happened to her 30 years ago. The impact was that long-lasting. Ultimately, and sadly and tragically, she took her own life. The myths and stereotypes, they've been discussed in some detail already. It's, it's not about uh, sex. It's about power and control. It's not about, you know, just because it shouldn't, you know, if you, somebody you know, it can't be rape. I've heard that before. Well, you know, until a decade ago, marital rape didn't exist, did it? You know, so hundreds and thousands of women were not allowed to do anything about the fact they were being raped in their homes. And you hear the ones about if they don't scream or fight or whatever it is, somehow they are responsible in some way for letting it happen. Well, you know, victims shut down. Very often, to protect themselves, they will shut down. They won't fight back. Now, what do we know about victims? Well, you know, amongst them, people with learning difficulties and mental health issues are disproportionately represented. Uh, we also know about the intimate details they have to explain to a jury, to a forensic examiner, to the police, over and over and over again. I regrettably have watched tons of video disclosures by victims. Not the nicest experience for, for me to hear or for me to watch, but them to have to express what happened to them in such detail. Now, what do we know? I said to you, what, what the way, yeah, another difference is the way we've handled it in terms of the justice system. We've handled it really badly in the past really badly. And I think we've learned a great deal. And now we're learning a great deal because women finally, sadly, 
they are now having to be talk about what they've done. It may have happened years and years ago, but they now feel able to talk about it. And therefore, I have a duty to listen to them. I have a duty to act upon that. And we don't have a situation where it's 100% prosecution policy. I would just, you know, I know the figures. Uh, about just under one in two of the cases referred to us by the police are prosecuted. So half of them aren't. So we make a judgment based on the Code for Crown Prosecutors, the guidelines that we publish, etc., etc., as to whether a case will be realistically prosecuted. And then, so it's not 100% policy. So we do apply a judgment. At the same time, we provide a several, uh, tons of support for victims. We also ensure there are special measures so they can give evidence behind a screen. All we know from experience around the world works in order for them to give their best evidence. It doesn't mean that the defendant or suspect doesn't get a fair trial. That's, the, uh, that's our responsibility too. And we make sure that happens. So where are we today? I've said to you a minute ago, we charge just under one, in, one out of every two cases referred to us by the police, uh, which is an all-time high. We have a conviction rate now of two in every three of our prosecutions, an all-time high. We are no further actioning, i.e. telling the police no action should be taken or discontinuing, an all-time low. Make, when people talk about, you know, this is all about women lying, etc., we carried out a study of every case that came to us over a period of 17 months. In that time, we prosecuted 35 women for perverting the course of justice. In the same time, we prosecuted 5,700 rapes. That gives you an idea of what we're talking about in terms of another myth that people do lie about these things. Yes, they do, but it's not as serious or not as large as people would make out. We can't be complacent. We can't be complacent. Can I give two final stories? I know you're going to tell me to wrap up, so... Uh, I am, but do give two final stories. Two final stories. One, one of which relates to uh, a young woman called Benaz Mahmood you may, have, may be familiar with. Benaz Mahmood lived in London. Uh, she kissed her boyfriend outside of a tube station in South London, and, and she was subsequently murdered by her uncle, her father, and three other men uh, for that. Uh, and uh, the great shame that she'd brought to her family by publicly kissing somebody. When the three men decided to... Uh, to murder her, well, they, they were going to murder her, they took her to this house, they started strangling her, one of them decided to rape her before, he, before she died. Subsequently, when he was covertly taped, uh, as we do sometimes, uh, he said, in her last breath, I wanted, to know, wanted her to know who was in control. Does that give you a feel for what we're dealing with here? And to give you the final story, uh, two years ago I went, I went around to a woman and she was, um, she was from a particular community, doesn't matter what community, and I noticed that her wedding ring was not on her wedding finger, it was on the exact opposite finger. And I asked her, uh, you know, why are you wearing your wedding ring on the wrong finger? And she said, because they forced me to marry the wrong man. She had been forced into marriage, she had been raped pretty much every day by her new husband, every day. This was the only way she could protest. She didn't have a voice. Therefore, why is it wrong for me to listen to her? Why is it wrong for me not to do something with the information that she's given me? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I'm sure all our speakers uh, would have a lot more to say if we let them. Um, I thought very briefly, if anyone would like to add anything in response to what other people have said, um, that'd be fine, but very, very brief. Can I? Yes, okay. brief. This, this will be very brief. I don't want to take time away from discussion. I was, I was rather sorry that you stopped Jennifer just as she was going to explain my agenda. Um, I was rather looking forward to that. Um, I just want to clarify um, a few 
um, misunderstandings that you had about uh, my article. I'm not going to take up much time because it is um, freely available for people to read if they want. It's absolutely not true to say that I want compensation cut um, to rape victims. That must be a misunderstanding from the article. It's absolutely not true that I want to um, turn the clock back, let alone that I don't want to see justice um, for rape victims. Um, we may have different understandings of what will achieve justice for rape victims and how that is best achieved, but that's absolutely not the case. And I also um, it, I make very, very clear at the beginning of my article um, and really throughout that I'm not talking about the historical position. It would be absolutely ridiculous to suggest that rape victims haven't had um, bad treatment from the police and from many um, other agencies historically. Um, and I make that absolutely clear, and I'm looking forward at the current position, and I I think things have improved considerably and I think we need to um, take the measure of how things are now and move forward from there. I've obviously got lots more I'd like to say yeah. but I don't want to take time away from discussion. I just want, I would urge people to um, have a look at the article because those were misunderstandings of what I said. Thank you. Did you want to have a thing, Jennifer? My notes over here, sorry. That's There's just um, one thing I wanted to say about rape myths. Um, if you look at the studies, um, the studies don't suggest that everyone um, subscribes no. to rape myths. Not at all. What they show is that a substantial minority of people subscribe to some of these myths. And remember, it only takes three people on a jury who subscribe to some of these myths to affect the outcome of the trial. And likewise, you mentioned the amnesty study. Um, as you said yourself, it was only one in three who had victim-blaming attitudes. That means twice as many did not, in fact, even in that rather... Um, you know, uh, popular study, as it were. Well, you actually put it at 44.4% of the general public who test positive for rape myth acceptance. Um, so that seems to me to be more than a substantial minority. I don't want this, obviously. It's still a minority, to... isn't it? It's just about a minority. Okay, we... <laughs> okay. would any of our other speakers... Okay, great. Well, we can um, open it up to, to questions from the floor. Um, I think we do have microphones to, to pass around. So if I pick you out, um, if you just wait for the microphone, then everyone can hear what you're saying. Remember, as I've said, this is being recorded, uh, so keep it clean, I guess. Uh, and do try and um, keep your questions brief and to the point. Uh, so we have a first question there. Just a quick point on Stern. Of course, the point of Stern was to say that once a case got before a jury, it was just as likely to end in a conviction as any other case. The whole point of the report was to ensure that women felt comfortable dealing with uh, a criminal trial. So I think, uh, Jennifer, you've misunderstood the point of Stern as well as Helen's article. Um, two, I think just to talk about um, uh, Nazir's approach... Um, Nazir, you know that in all these criminal trials, uh, the, rape is different in one sense because... The only issue in a rape case is the complainant's credibility. They say one thing, the defendant says something else. So um, what we've seen recently is obviously the CPS attempting to repeal the 
tests that they used to apply um, about credibility. So uh, should you note or take notice of the fact that someone waited uh, before they made a complaint? Should you take uh, seriously the fact that they were drunk at the time, etc., etc.? Now, of course, this does victims or com- actually complainants, because they're complainants up until they get a conviction, uh, this does complainants absolutely no favours because juries are going to think in those terms. They are going to think, well, can we take this person's credibility seriously if they waited two weeks to make the complaint? Can we take their credibility seriously if they were drunk um, when they alleged the incident took place? These are actually all very common sense tests that members of the jury are going to apply when they have the complainant before them in the courtroom. So what possible favour do the CPS think they're doing complainants by effectively prolonging their experience of having their credibility judged? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've, I mean, I'm glad you've read the uh, CBS guidelines, and I really appreciate it. Um, two reasons. Uh, in the point you made, really, in relation to why we bring these cases and what, whether we're doing people a disservice or not, uh, in the last year, uh, we've had a significant increase in our conviction rates. Uh, we've had a significant increase in the cases that we actually prosecute, which previously we didn't. Uh, so they're, they're, they're linked up. The reality is that you can deal with these cases, front them with the jury. You can talk to the jury about these issues in your opening speech. You know, she might have been drinking, but the drink was not the rapist. You can say these things, which previously some of our lawyers didn't say those things. And previously some of the lawyers, when they were considering whether to bring a case in the first place, didn't allow them those cases to go to court because they use their, they apply their own myths and stereotypes or what they understood to be uh, myths and stereotypes before those cases come to court. So from our perspective, um, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Our conviction rates are going up. Our cases are proceeding at some speed now and getting better and better and better. Uh, and therefore, we must be applying the right tests. Jennifer, did you want to come back on the stern point at all? No, no. No, no, that's fine. Um, another question then, please. Yeah, the, the woman in the second row here. Um, hi, um, mine's a question for Helen. It's, it's sort of about methodology, really. Um, you said at one point certain types of behaviour are likely to have an impact on whether someone's raped, and I just wonder how you can possibly test that. How can you create two parallel situations um, where perhaps in one situation a woman drinks and is raped and doesn't drink and then isn't raped? And when you talk about uh, whether that ha- sort of like the impact of blame or responsibility, surely if you're saying that certain types of behaviour do are more likely to lead to rape, you're actually endorsing blaming rape victims because and if they know that those, those types of behaviour are more likely to lead to rape, if they still engage in them, then that's blame. It's not responsibility. It's not as if it could have gone both ways. They're more likely to have been raped, therefore they're to blame. Do you want me to answer that straight away? Sure, yes. Um, I, I said a lot of things that were very contentious in my presentation, but I don't think Jennifer will correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't really think it's contentious that certain forms of behaviour have been shown to increase the risk of rape. And what's quite interesting is that, um, and Jennifer will definitely correct me if I'm um, being misleading here, but that's really um, accepted, I think, by um, rape researchers, by rape myth researchers and and rape researchers. The difference is that um, they're not happy with the language of increased risk because, as you say, they're worried that that sort of forms a link with the idea of responsibility and then on to... Um, blame. But they say the same thing, but the word that they prefer to use there is vulnerability. So they do accept that drinking, um, you know, going home with someone, um, you know, when you're drunk, um, do, in, uh, do increase a woman's vulnerability um, to being raped. But that seems to me 
to be really playing with words because if you talk about increasing vulnerability, that is a sort of politer way of saying that the risk is increased. And I absolutely refute a distinction, a, a connection between increased risk and blame. Um, it's it's completely um, possible to think that certain behaviour increases the risk of any crime, whether that's being beaten up, being raped, um, or whatever, without attributing any blame to that. Of course, of course women have every right to get drunk, um, to, you know, go out partying, and so on. And of course, and this is something I absolutely agree with Jennifer on, of course... The blame lies squarely on the person who commits the crime. I don't see any contradiction between recognising what increases the risk and um, refuting the idea of blame there. And I think many members of the public would agree with that. Can I just say something there? There's a Home Office study which points out that one of the biggest risk factors now for women who are assaulted is going to a nightclub once a week. Um, So in terms of what you do and the situations you are in can increase your vulnerability to certain types of crime. Now, it seems to me we need to make a distinction here between legal responsibility and moral responsibility. Um, The law does not attribute any responsibility now to the victim of rape, whereas traditionally we know judges would say when it came to sentence, well, she was contributorily negligent or something like that. Um, But it seems to me that in, in terms of personal morality... Um, bearing in mind that we are a very diverse society, I think it is wholly unrealistic to assume that there is only one moral approach to this. Um, And equally, it seems to me, simply factually, we all know that if you are drunk, you are far more likely to have accidents. So if you fall off a bar stool, hit your head and have a serious brain injury because you are drunk, um, people are going to say, well, you chose to get drunk. So it does seem to me there is something a little sanitised about the idea that we cannot even have a discussion about the moral responsibility, um, whatever people may want to say about the legal responsibility. Okay. Uh, so there's a woman on the second to last row, pretty much at the back. Um, firstly, I'd just like to thank Nazir for making the point that rape is um, fundamentally about power and control um, and I would just also like to raise the, um, the, the question of vulnerability and um, increased risk factors. I mean I think correct me if I'm wrong but any uh, rape can happen to anyone, to somebody that drinks, doesn't drink is married, is not married, is a child is not a child. The only increased risk factor in, in my eyes is being a woman. Except that men also get raped. No, but that, that's a very good point because you're absolutely right that when it comes to uh, the statistics, women um, as victims far outnumber men as victims of sexual assault. And so do young sexually active women outnumber older women. That's, that's the fa- that, those are the facts. And it seems very um, coy not to be able to have a straightforward discussion where we recognise who is more at risk of being raped. I don't see any connection between that and blaming victims for being raped. Can I just, can I just add, I mean, your point, 99.99% of, uh, of rape victims are women. Uh, 99% of men that are raped are also raped by men. So from our perspective, there's the, there's the issue. It's about men and their desires or their needs uh, and being fulfilled in some way. But I think your point is, a point made many, many times already, it's not the drink that does the rape. It's the rapist. 
Uh, and why should a woman have to not go to the night, nightclub once a week? Why should she dress up and put a chastity belt on or something? You know, the point is, men need to take responsibility. Okay, um, another question. Uh, we've got a woman in black on the front row here. Hi there. So, thank you for a really comprehensive discussion. So far, it's been riveting to listen to. We've discussed credibility, responsibility, physical assault, and um, Downton Abbey. But we haven't come to the C word, which, for all purposes, is consent. I mean, is that not the essential quality of the rape crime that makes it completely different? It's not like, I mean, when we compare it to a burglary or a murder, it's not like people kind of want it a bit and then up until the point where the crime actually happens, they're able to consent or not consent. I mean, as the criminality of rape depends on how much the... I was going to say victim, but that's not the right word because it implies innocence. So I'm going to say recipient recipient wants it. Thank you. Does um, so anyone want to take up the issue about consent? Well, I just want to say this, that I think there is a problem with the Sexual Offences Act because what it did was to water down the notion of consent. Um, I mean, it was expressly done in order to make it easier to get a conviction for rape. It wanted to do away with the Morgan approach, um, whereby if a man honestly believed that a woman was consenting, he didn't have the necessary mens rea for the offence to be committed, although it was for the jury to decide whether they really believed him or not. Um, But we're we're now getting into a rather strange area um, whereby consent is being redefined by feminists as not just consent but, quotes, enthusiastic consent, unquotes. And Wadham College in Oxford now has compulsory courses for freshers whereby they must go to these courses and be told that consent to sex is the the Antioch College definition of consent, where consent must be enthusiastic and active and um, every single phase of the sexual encounter must have its own consent moment. Um, And and this is where, I I mean, since you've raised the issue of consent, this to me takes it out of the criminal arena altogether because it really then turns into a kind of um, failure to take care. Uh, And about 10 years ago, I wrote an article saying, well, look, if rape is really a failure to take care, then why is it in the criminal courts at all? It should be um, an issue of negligence rather than a criminal offence. So I think we have to be careful if we're going to water down the notion of consent to something um, which becomes, if you like, a a misunderstanding, but not with the necessary criminal intent on the part of the man. Okay, there's a gentleman about halfway back on the um, right flank. It's been Rachel to ask a question. Uh, I wish to thank all the participants. Uh, We're clearly discussing, it seemed to be we're discussing rape in the context of the, uh, the women and young ladies in this country. We, we are, you, all of you have not touched upon the systematic rape uh, that's taking place all around the world. I come from Iraq. It, it, routinely now, all young women, and, and, uh, married or unmarried, are subjugated and humiliated, not to control by the occupy, previously by the occupying forces, their, their agents and their, their uh, cohorts. Uh, the, the rape is, is not only used to control, it's to humiliate. It's what is happening now in Syria, in Egypt, 
in uh, Colombia, uh, what happened in the past in Chile, and what happened in India, that poor unfortunate uh, student, and, and so on. I put it to, to uh, Helen. This, this matter is not matter to access Google. Google rape, it doesn't, uh, it's not an, uh, an issue has to be discussed in Google. And as to your contention that Amnesty, Amnesty International would only get credibility if it, if it looks into the in, uh, occurrence of incest and rape that's predominant in, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, where uh, servants are routinely abused, and if they don't consent, they are killed. This is what's happening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that obviously is a point that takes us to a much wider agenda about um, rape as a, as a war crime, etc. Um, does anyone want to comment on that? No. Um, another question, then. Uh, yes, a woman in green. Uh, thank you. I, I'd also like to uh, congratulate LSE on organising what is a difficult and sensitive issue and having an open discussion. In a way, though, I was a little disappointed that straight away having had a clarification that there is a distinction between responsibility and how that suddenly turns into um, being accused of blaming that within about five minutes um, somebody who'd said responsibility isn't blaming was then accused of blaming and uh, victim blaming so I was a bit disappointed Jennifer because the example you used of the uh, McCann's for example and Kate Kate McCann that you Mm -hmm. used it is undoubtedly the case that the McCann's had some responsibility for the fact that they left their children on their own And that does not mean that I think that they are to blame for the fact that their child was taken away. But if they had obviously not left their children on their own, a different set of circumstances would have occurred. We have to be able to say that without fear of people accusing you of somehow not caring about victims of rape. Or that somehow... And that's what I find very difficult in this discussion. I think as well... Nazir, uh, if I could ask you maybe to clarify something, because you you actually said... um, you know, we ha- you said the law in the past had dealt with victims very badly and that it was time that we made amends for past faults and that's the way we had to deal with things now. Well, that sounded more like a moral crusade than the law. And forgive me, but I do worry if you start to use the law to make amends for some past CPS guilt or some bad boys in police. That is not a correct use of the law and is a dangerous, in fact, use of the law and can only lead to, in fact, an assault on justice. And you also mentioned um, that women, if they have to give, um, as you said, victims, and I think it's right that we say uh, complainants, because we do have to remember that people are innocent until they're proven guilty. That is an important thing that I at least do not want to lose in all of this. But it does seem to me that if it's the case that for women to be cross-examined who have accused someone of rape, their intimate details are dragged before the courts and you think this is inappropriate, it is also horrible and terrible but you have to recognise, I would hope, that somebody who's accused of rape also has their intimate details dragged before the court and accused of the most heinous of crimes, and somehow that we are not allowed to mention that without somehow being, you know, or you didn't mention it. Let's put it this way. It's unpleasant to have your intimate details dragged before the court on either side of that. It's unpleasant, nasty, but in the cause of finding out whether somebody is guilty or innocent and whether you as a CPS have the right to take their liberty away, I think it's important those things are tested in the most uh, robust fashion. Finally, my final question... That's at least two questions. Well, all right, my final point then is... Can can we have some responses from the panel, Fine, 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 (laughs) fine. 
absolutely. Uh, can I, uh, I, don't, I don't recall saying that because of past things we need to uh, make amends. It's, that, it's not about making amends. Uh, my point was that we've treated victims badly in the past. Historically, we have, uh, for all the reasons that Jennifer outlined in terms of previous, uh, the ways we've dealt with cases in the past. We now have very good guidance. We now have good specialist prosecutors dealing with these cases, specialist police investigators. It's about getting it right. That's what we're trying to do now, and hopefully that will, you'll see the benefits of that as we move forward. In relation to the other issue around um, uh, the uh, testimony that people have to give in court, absolutely agree with you. I mean, uh, th- there has to be uh, proper testing of the evidence. What we are concerned about, and what I think the government have been uh, made, made reference to recently, is when you have multiple defendants uh, in relation to one victim. When you have, uh, in one case, 11 people cross-examining, 11 counsel cross-examining, a 16-year-old girl over six days, uh, asking the same question over and over and over again. You know, what service does that do to, the, to justice, uh, and what role do the judge or judges have in that particular situation? So from my perspective, absolutely right that it should be properly tested and challenged, but it has to be fair to both sides. Do you want to come back no, to the no, McCann's? Oh, on the McCann's, I just don't understand the point you're making on the McCann's. I would have thought... It's making it a distinction between responsibility and blame. Yeah, well, I don't see that the McCann's are responsible for what happened. I don't see that. I mean, they're responsible in the sense that they were... It, 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 it really... We're now talking about... Uh, it's a semantic thing, isn't it? No, so in, ter- in terms of... arguing about how we use the word... The word responsible, so. yes, that's no, right. Not at all, no. Can I say something? Um, I just want to say something about the way in which these cases are prosecuted. Now, there's a modern tendency, and it's not limited to criminal prosecutions of prosecuting the kitchen sink. So you don't just have one charge. You have loads of charges. You don't just have one person accused. You have lots of accused. And you see it in the regulatory field as well. I once had a defendant midwife who was accused of 63 allegations of misconduct. And to try it would have taken probably about six weeks, and it would have been dreadful for her. Now, in the end, um, the regulator withdrew the case. Um, But it seems to me the CPS, in a sense, is causing the very problem that it's now complaining about because it insists on prosecuting these multi-handed cases with loads and loads of allegations against loads and loads of defendants. Now, if you've got a minor uh, complainant, is that really necessary, I would ask? You um, don't need to prosecute all and sundry. You need to prosecute the primary person who is responsible. Um, You don't need to have these very long trials where inevitably, if the defendants are all to be properly defended, and if there are 11 defendants, then they will all need to question the person who is making the complaint. Uh, And a way around that is simply not to have this sprawling indictment with everything but the kitchen sink thrown in, in the hope that the jury will think that because so many people are being accused, that in some sense there's no smoke without fire and therefore a conviction should follow. So that's my point. Okay, uh, another question. There's a gentleman near the, near the front here. Um, for Barbara and Nazir, my question is to both of you policy wise, moving forward, what do you see as your key suggestions? Um, that's, that's what I want to know, just a brief uh, policy suggestions. Broad question. Well, I think we need to get away from the idea that sex crime needs to be treated differently because I think that actually creates an expectation that it's also terrible and violating and awful, um, that therefore nobody wants to get involved unless you have all these special measures. And I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think we actually need to row back from that. Uh, And I think we need to say, particularly with adults, I can see you can make a difference in the respect of child defendants on the basis that they are 
less able, or sorry, not child defendants, but child complainants, um, just as with child defendants, that they're not able to face the rigours of the full adversarial process. But it seems to me if you're talking about an adult accusing another adult, um, they should be treated equally, uh, and that involves a fundamental legal principle, which is equality before the law. Um, And I think also the principle of legal certainty means that we shouldn't be carrying on this excavation into the past in relation to historic allegations, which we don't do for any other type of crime. So if you are a victim of burglary, insurance fraud, um, death by dangerous driving, you do not find the authorities running around looking to find out what went wrong all those years ago. No matter what's happened, it could be equally devastating. So there is a sense in which, at the moment, our current preoccupation with sex crime and the way it's prosecuted and the way it's treated is unbalancing the justice system because it's creating a special category of complainant who is deemed to be, um, if you like, almost superior to other complainants. And I think that whilst I can see the short-term measure of trying to redress the balance, I think in the long term that is damaging. So I would like to see these particular types of crimes treated in the same way as other crimes. Um, Just can I start with the end, really? Um, I prosecute burglaries that happened 13 years ago when the defendant turns up or fingerprints or DNA evidence enables us to be able to prove who they are. I don't think there's any offence which uh, is time-barred, save for those that were statutorily time-barred. And I gave the example earlier on about Frances Andrade. What happened to her happened in 1979 to 1981. She tried to harm herself pretty much every other year since. She needed justice. She deserved justice. Our job, surely, is to give her justice. But to uh, take Barbara's point, yes, there is equality of arms. They have lawyers. Plenty of you. They have lawyers. They have, uh, they have judge. We disclose our evidence. We disclose evidence that undermines our case. They are able to present their case in the same way that we can present our case. And it gets, therefore, entitled, they get a fair trial. Uh, just can I go back to the, in terms of what you want, what the different, I think what we need to get away from is, uh, is to have no postcode lottery. Everywhere in the country, we apply the code. We, uh, police officers do their investigation as well as they possibly can. Uh, the guidelines are, are used in every single case. Our decision-making is upheld in terms of scrutiny anywhere and everywhere in the country. That's what I want. And that, to my mind, will will make me sleep better, uh, which sometimes I'm not able to. And I think uh, that's ultimately what I want. Can I use this opportunity also? There was a point that um, uh, Barbara made about indictments. You know, if there are 15 women who've come forward to talk about their experiences, if they have spent several hours talking about it on video uh, and disclosure... If they outline the dates when it all happened, I would not be doing my duty if there isn't, you know, if there is sufficient evidence not putting those cases before a court. The judge has every power to sever the indictment, to decide what isn't appropriate. The defence can argue that it should be dismissed in one way or another. That all exists. But ultimately, if you have made an allegation, if it stands up to scrutiny from our perspective, if there is a realistic possibility of conviction, then you're entitled to your day in court. Thank you, Bradley. Was there anything coming through on Twitter you, you think is worth... Not really. <laughs> People aren't tweeting well tonight. No, no, they are. It's OK, just, uh, no questions. OK, that's fine. Well, thank you very much. Uh, someone else with a, a question. There's a woman in a white T-shirt about halfway back. Uh, thank you. So I guess uh, the, the first is a, a comment and a, a second a question, mainly directed towards Helen Rees. So firstly, um, it seems to me relevant that in assessing our, um, these attitudes and, and whether they are so different from other crimes, we need to account for this failure to identify rape, which seems to be a pretty prevalent 
um, context for rape in the society. Um, when you say rape, of course you're going to invoke really abhorrent attitudes. Um, but when you change the phrasing, when you rephrase this question to be sex without consent, um, then it does produce very different attitudes. And I believe there is some research out there to support that. Um, furthermore, uh, if these attitudes are, are not so different to other crimes, then I'm wondering what are the possible reason there is uh, for there to be such significant gender division for this crime over other crimes. Um, it seems to be that this issue of gender division is also incredibly relevant to this question of whether rape is different. Oh, I'm not sure I've understood um, your question very well. I mean, in terms of the gendered um, dimension, that is, uh, I'm not talking about rapists and whether they have... I mean, obviously... They have about, I'm talking about the general population. Rape is, uh, this is something that I agree with other panellists about, rape is uh, a very, very gendered crime. Of course, in the eyes of the law, it is completely in the sense that um, only men can rape. Um, so in that sense, it is. But rape is very much gendered. That's a different question from whether um, attitudes, um, you know, whether attitudes are different for rape from other crimes. On your first point, I think that really opens up a whole... Your first comment, I think that really opens up a whole um, hornet's nest. And I think there is a problem in the way that... Um, uh, particularly Jennifer, but also Nazir, was talking about the issue of rape and how um, incredibly serious it is. Because while I wouldn't want to obviously dissent from that, rape is, of course, a very serious crime. The problem is, as you say, that when you phrase um, the question differently and you, talk, you ask women um, whether they've had sex without consent or even sometimes it's put differently um, in the British Crime Survey and questionnaires, you say, have you ever had um, sex when you didn't want to or have you ever felt pressured into sex? Um, those sorts of questions which are very, very prevalent um, in um, the surveys, then you are going to get a huge number of women um, and very, very many men as well saying, well, yes, of course I have, of course I've had sex sexual intercourse when I didn't really want to or when I felt pressured or when I felt that there were um, reasons prevailing down upon me, there were pressures prevailing on me um, that made me do something that I wouldn't have done in a totally free um, sense. And I think that's one of the problems with what Jennifer was saying earlier on and what Nazir's been saying about the idea that we have to do everything we can to make um, rape make people, women who um, encourage women who've been raped to come forward that what we're going to be doing is we're going to be catching an awful lot of incidents and I'm afraid I don't think that every single, I agree with Barbara on this point, I don't think every single one of those incidents will be um, of the utmost heinousness and the utmost seriousness Okay, well I'm aware that we could go on and on with questions, but one of our speakers uh, does have a train to catch. Um, so um, I, th I thought that was a good question on which to end. Um, and I'm sorry there's not time for any more. Remind you, uh, we have been recording this, so it should go up as a podcast on the Law Department website if you want to look out for that. Also look on our website for details of forthcoming coming events. Uh, so thank you everyone for coming and for the great questions. But most of all, thank you very much to our excellent panel tonight. <laughs>